Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I am Connor Beaton, and joining me today are Jonathan Decker and Alan Seawright, who are the creators of Cinema Therapy, uh, which is a really interesting uh, online. Uh, it's mostly on YouTube, but it's an online platform where they use cinema, they use movies and TV shows to break down therapeutic concepts. Uh, so this is how they describe it. This is, this is literally word for word the bio that they, the, the biography that they sent me. Cinema therapy is hosted by licensed therapist Jonathan Decker and film right Alan C. Wright. They discuss how movies can be used to improve your life and how to watch movies with your brain turned on. Also, there are jokes. <laughs> so, uh, and, and one of their catchphrases is making sense of life one blockbuster at a time. So we're going to dive into archetypes in in this uh, in some in a, bit, a bit of a light way. We're going to talk about mythology, and for whatever reason, we sort of focus in on the Marvel series, and we kind of go deep into how certain characters are portrayed in the Mar- Marvel series. Um, we talk about masculinity in relationship to the characters that we see in mainstream TV in in mainstream movies. Um, and we explore really how the the heroic archetype is portrayed through these movies and the depth and the layers of psychological understanding, self-understanding, uh, therapeutic understanding that there actually is in a lot of these movies. And so this is a bit nerdy. <laughs> this, there, there's, some, there's some funny parts to this, but this is a great conversation about how we can actually view the content that we are uh, intaking in a different lens through a, a, a sort of brain on, as they say, a brain turned on lens to better actualize, to better self-understand, to better understand the sort of mythological journeys um, that all of us are naturally on. So without any further delay, please welcome Jonathan Decker and Alan Seawright from Cinema Therapy. Fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Good. I haven't I haven't done many... Uh, many of these conversations with two people before so this will be fun and i feel like it's going to be it's gonna be great i actually when i started the show i actually had a co-host and it was his idea to start the show oddly enough i felt like a very similar position i've i watched quite a few of your guys's um uh pieces on youtube and alan you know i I knew what it felt like to be in your in your seat in in some ways because my when i first started this podcast my the co-host that I started it with, uh, Roger, he was the one that thought we should do this, and I had never listened to a podcast before in my life, never, not once. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, "You have to, you have to do this. Going to be the future. Like, you got to get on it." And I was like, "Okay, all right." And and I have just fallen in love with it. So, um, anyway, I digress. Uh, I'm going to start off with the question that I ask all my guests, which is, "Tell us a story." about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. And well, maybe we'll just, maybe we'll start with Alan and we'll go to Jonathan. Interestingly, my, I think the defining moment that uh, people would find, you know, most interesting is uh, it's related to Jono. Jonathan, I, I call him Jono. He used to be Jono back in college. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I was just uh, minding my own business cycling through majors in college and uh Jonathan moved into my apartment and was obsessed with movies like I was but he was actually doing something about it uh he was you know making short films and and goofing around with friends in a way that uh, I just hadn't really done or considered 
uh, and we went to a bunch of movies. He roped me into bringing my sound gear to a premiere of one of his short films. And I was like, oh, Jesus, student film. This is going to be terrible. And he had made a parody. We were both huge fans of the TV show 24 on Fox. And he had made a sort of parody homage of that. And it was great. I mean, it wasn't good, but it was great. Like <laughs> very funny. The action was like surprisingly exciting. And, you know, the I just loved it. The production quality was crap, but, the, uh, but it, I, I'm proud of the script. <laughs> yes, exactly. And come on, the acting, your, your scene where you're torturing your, uh, what, former girlfriend by spraying ketchup on her shirt was, like, amazing. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, uh, yeah, so just had a blast with that. And a few, about two months later, I guess, I had an idea for a sequel to that. And Jonathan was like, that's awesome. Great idea. We stayed up till like two in the morning, hashing out all the beats of the story. And he was like, well, I don't have time to direct it because I'm too busy with school. Why don't you direct it? And I was like, yeah, I love absolutely failing all my classes. You're right. <laughs> that's all I've been doing in college anyway. Why not have, why not do that? And that uh, started me down a path that 15 years later has led to us sitting in a basement talking about movies. <laughs> and you became, you became a filmmaker. And there have been so many times during our friendship where you have said to me, I don't know whether to thank you or blame you, but here I am. And oh, I'm yeah, like, that... I wasn't even setting out to get you to drop out of college <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like a yearly text message between us. Like, why did you make me do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I feel like that's a good a good filmmaker start right there every every mm -hmm. filmmaker needs a good a good origin story to stay on topic yeah. i feel like i feel like that's that's a good origin story right there it's like you can and then you have you have a fall boy you have a scapegoat if everything goes absolutely <laughs> it's all jonathan's fault yeah so good so jonathan um same question well for me the uh you know this i guess this is all part of a chicken or the egg type thing because i i guest inspired Alan to become a filmmaker and then watching some things that Alan was producing and realizing that, yeah, I made some student films, but in, I had made seven or eight student films and his very first film was way better than anything I'd ever done. And then later, you know, a decade down the line, a decade plus, I'd seen a lot of what he was doing. And I had this idea. I, I had this crazy obsession with movies that has never left me. And I don't know why it won't leave me alone. So what happened is he, he produced all these this really high quality content. And I had this idea, like I'm obsessed with movies, didn't know why I'm obsessed with movies and couldn't leave my obsession alone. And I'm like, I'm a family therapist. Like, why can't I just be a casual movie buff? Why am I obsessed with reviewing movies and doing all this stuff and i and i realized that i wanted to blend my loves in a way to teach people um principles that would help them and i could never have pulled off a show without him and so you know turnabout is fair play the quality of everything he was doing made me reach out to him and say hey um i want you on this with me and he was he was all about it it's awesome so I, I love it that was a big turning point for me Cool. Well, I, I love the concept of, of what you guys developed in sort of tackling very real life issues or problems or concepts or ideas and relating them to film and TV, because I think in a lot of ways, 
we are in Western society, like we're very much inundated with the, you know, Disneyfied version and TV version of what life should look like. You know, I feel like in some ways we're just coming out of a few years of life sort of feeling like reality TV, you know, where like we, everything's hyped, everything's, and and I think there's a lot of people that play into that, right? I mean, you have people like the Kardashians. I mean, I I saw rumors that they want to uh, record their divorce and crap like that. And it's like, oh my God. Oh, so, so there seems to be like this breakdown between what reality looks like and what TV looks like. And so mm -hmm. I love what you guys are doing because I think it makes it very much relatable that we can sort of look at these psychological concepts or therapeutic concepts and overlay them with sort of TV and, and film that we're also very familiar with. So maybe we can start off with a little bit around some of the modern, not necessarily archetypes, but maybe specifically masculine archetypes that you guys see being portrayed in TV. Because this is something that I've seen a few articles written about. And I think you guys touch on it a little bit in one of your videos, if, if I'm not mistaken. But the idea of modern masculinity showing up in TV and film, and you guys have a great video around Aragon from Lord of the Rings and toxic masculinity. So let's just start there. How do you see men being portrayed on TV, on film, in movies? And is, is it intentional? Is it indicative of our times? Maybe I'll just kind of like let you guys riff on that. Uh, Jonathan, take it away. I'll provide color commentary. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I... You know, if you track it through time, you have—I mean, you—you you have these very macho ideals. Uh, even even starting from from the inception of cinema, you had the the strong men and the very masculine men, and, but you also had Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, who right out of the gate, there's this really wonderful balance of vulnerability and bravery. You know, where they would do—I mean, Buster Keaton, they. Harold Lloyd, they, they do these staggeringly terrifying stunts that, you know, Jackie Chan and Tony Jaw pay homage to say, these guys are our inspiration for risking our lives on film. And, um, and these, and these characters and Charlie Chaplin's little tramp had a great tenderness about them and a great warmth to them. And, and there was still incredible physical acts of daring do, but it was all kind of taking the piss out of the tough guy idea. And then we, we get into John Wayne, we get into Clint Eastwood, we get into, especially the 80s were like the golden era of alpha Giant. male masculinity. Yeah. Giant, <laughs> macho, muscle-bound heroes. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, for all our talk about healthy masculinity and all our talk about, um, you know, being able to be vulnerable and to express one's emotions and to be tenderhearted, I know for a fact that Alan and I both love that 80s... <laughs> We grew up on up. It. Yeah, yeah we, we, grew, we grew up on Stallone and Schwarzenegger and, you know, and, uh, and so... Tom's, Tom Selleck's mustache. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Right. The manliest <laughs> piece of facial hair in human history. Absolutely. absolutely. Burt Reynolds, you know, laying out on a tiger skin carpet. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> like with the chest hair. It's just like, oh, it's everything. Oh, yeah. it's, it's it right there. And my, my dad is, you know, interestingly, he was a, he was a great husband, great father. Uh, he loved hunting and sports and rock music and was very manly. But he had no problem with crying in front of our family. He had no problem being very tenderhearted towards his children, towards his wife. Um, you know, he, he had no problem being vulnerable or showing 
genuine emotion uh, and being patient and kind. And so I had this, I had this great balance right out of the gate. My dad raised me on Clint Eastwood and James Bond, right? But it was very much balanced by who he was as a person. And, and so in, in pop culture, I think we're starting to trend more and more towards even our action heroes. Uh, we're, we're starting to go back into Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And look at, look at Thor Ragnarok and look at Chris mm-hmm. Hemsworth and how big and strong he is and how many moments of um, humbling physical comedy there are with Thor and how much that endears us to him or... Or, or Tony Stark, I was watching Iron Man 3 the other day when he's, when he's summoning all of the Iron Man suit to him at the beginning and he says, he's like, yeah, I'm the man. And then like the last one hits him in the groin and the suit completely falls apart and he's laying on the ground. You know, like, and, and so I think we are, we are seeing more and more a trend towards, like with Aragorn, tough yet tender. Yeah, we're, complete we're seeing, masculinity. Yeah, complete, complete masculinity. That that Tony Stark is defined as much by "I love you three thousand as "I am Iron Man." That his his tenderness is as awesome as his ass kicking ability, and and I think that's a very positive thing. Yeah, I I appreciate that perspective. I think in in some ways, I had another gentleman on the show, um, actually another marriage and family therapist named Francis Weller, and we we talked about one dimensional masculinity, and how in a lot of um, a lot of our sort of like cultural memes or, you know, TV shows or whatever, there's a very small section of masculinity that's shown, right? You either have like the Homer Simpson, yeah. right? The dumb dad, or, you know, yeah. you, you, so you have like these examples, I think. Or know, family guy or any number of, yeah. of more grown up animated series where the dad's a buffoon. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you have shows like How I Met Your Mother, where you've got very interesting masculine archetypes in Ted Mosby and the other characters like, you know, uh, Barney is a very interesting character as well. And so, you know, you have those types of shows where it's showing a very specific quality of masculinity. I'm, I'm curious, Alan, for for you as a filmmaker, what does that look like when producing something like that? Like wh- when you're when you're going to have uh, men or women that sort of fit into these very typical archetypes or or symbols, you know, one, is that intentional? And then two, how do you go about developing something that then portrays that person's journey? Like, do you still try and use a lot of mythology within your work? Or what, is, what does that look like from your side? It's It's such an interesting, difficult task in a film, right? One of the great things about living in the, you know, second golden age or platinum age, whatever you want to call it of television is in TV, especially more serialized TV, you get to explore characters in depth, right? It's really great. Uh, Breaking Bad is a fantastic example of a guy who starts as a very three-dimensional sort of masculine guy and over the course of five seasons devolves into this one-dimensional monster by, in a lot of ways, just leaning heavily on that that sort of limiting masculinity, but that's not something you can do in a film, right? You have two hours, you don't have five seasons. And so there, you know, by necessity, there has to be in a film, a fair amount of uh, shorthand. Uh, You know, we can learn a lot about characters from their actions, but you, the, the trickiest thing in film is figuring out what are the, the cliches and the stereotypes that you can play and how can you play off of those to really quickly establish who and what a character is 
but in an interesting, new, fresh way. And then, you know, trying to find ways to build a three-dimensional character in, you know, only two hours is tricky. That's one of the reasons that, you know, so many films lean on sort of mythological archetypes, right? And the hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell. The the reason that is so prevalent is because it's, it even that is not easy, but that is achievable in two hours, right? And trying to have a more in-depth character study while also, you know, packing in enough explosions that you can draw an international audience <laughs> is, is tricky. It, it really is. And so the things that you lean on, obviously it, it all comes down to essentially two things. You have to have a brilliant writer who is, you know, really, really understands character. And then you have to have a brilliant actor who can give you three pages worth of emotional subtext with a glance or an eyebrow raise. If you don't have those two things as a, as a filmmaker, you know, when, when I'm directing, if, if I don't have those two things, it's like, well, guess I can tap dance around this, but it's not going to be good. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So, so you really, you really rely not just on the script, but on the sort of like the un spoken parts that can't be embedded into the script from the actors to portray some of the nuances of the characters and the myths that are being portrayed. Is that absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the Marvel movies get a ton of flack, uh, particularly from, I've seen a lot from, you know, the intelligentsia, I guess, of just being, Oh, it's, it's the same thing over and over and we have to have a big smash them up finale and everything. And I would argue that the Marvel films are some of the best character work that is happening in film right now. I mean, obviously there's a lot of sort of contemplative, smaller indie movies. Parasite yeah. was genius, but there's such brilliant character work in the midst of these gigantic, you know, orgies of CGI and, and everything oh, cool. else that's happening. There's, brilliant characterization and really, really good work from these actors who, you know, you look at them, it's like, oh, okay. They just lifted a bunch of weights and maybe took some performance enhancing drugs. Like <laughs> that's, that's their entire qualification is pretty face and giant muscles. And man, they're doing, you know, they're doing the Lord's work out there. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, say, <laughs> say, say more, say more about that. Cause I think, I do think that there's a lot of flack for it. And I think when we look at, I mean, one of the things that I've been very interested in is the sort of like cultural breakdowns of mythology, you know, that we we normally have these very strong myths that are being played out within our culture, within our societies on a large level and then on a sort of smaller microscopic level within their, our communities. And it seems like in the last decade or two, that those cultural mythologies have started to break down, you know, that we in Western society have really over-indexed on the hero myth and that the hero myth within, especially within America, but even within Canada, where I'm from, is very much front and center. It's like the pinnacle, the pinnacle myth. And it feels yeah. like we're sort of coming to an end, uh, end of times to be, you know. <laughs> Apocalyptic about it. <laughs> Apocalyptic, but like it feels like we're coming to an end of times in and around that hero mythology. And so I'm, I'm curious from your, from your perspective, why do you feel like 
the Marvel series and the Avengers series are so important right now because I, I feel like that's a, almost like a counter narrative in some ways. Like what what messages, what archetypes, what components do you feel like they're portraying that are important based on our time right now? I think uh, Joss Whedon addressed that really well in his script for the the first Avengers film, where Agent Coulson is talking to Cap <clears throat> about wearing the old uniform, and Cap says, "Doesn't that seem a little old fashioned?" and and Coulson says, you know, with, with every all the all the things that are about to come to life and light and everything that's about to happen, I think people could use a little old fashioned, you know. And then you have Nick Fury later on the the I, believing in heroes and it's an old fashioned notion. I, I think we want to be inspired to make a difference. I mean, there there is a fantasy component of superheroes coming and fixing up and fixing everything, but that was more Christopher Reeve's Superman, which I love, by the way. Um, at least the first two, but the the Marvel films show like that. You know the whole the whole civil war is they're trying to do good, and there's still collateral damage. There's still things that happen. There's still so I think Marvel addresses the reality of it's not always clean, but we still not just need heroes, but we we want to be that. You know, we want to be we want to be inspired to make a difference. And I think that's why we're drawn to hero stories. I know as a kid, that's why I, I was drawn to Christopher Reeve's Superman because it taught me, literally taught me as a boy, something that has stayed with me my 40 years, which is that being a man means helping people. Being a man means using your strength for good instead of to hurt and to make a difference in people's lives. And and that has never left me. And I think for this generation, for my kids, like, They'll watch the old Chris Reeves Superman with me and they like it just fine. But like they're all about the Marvel and it's because these characters inspire them to do good. Yeah. And, and I think leaning on, you know, obviously the Marvel films are all superhero films and the standalone movies, by and large, it's it's one hero saving the world, usually, unless it's Ant-Man and then he's robbing a bank but uh <laughs> you know it's saving the world from a threat it's one hero saving the world from a threat and i think what the the overarching like the entire cinematic universe especially including the avengers films did that i think was brilliant and in some ways sort of deconstructivist of the entire hero mythology is it's not one hero saving the world one hero can't save the world. We have, you know, they've steadily ramped up the power levels of the heroes in this franchise. You know, Thor's a literal god. Captain Marvel is maybe tougher than him. And yeah. she shows up and, you know, can't beat this threat. So the only way to save the world, to to protect what we love about our world, is to join forces and work together in a very, you know, non-stereotypical for that hero myth kind of way. It's not one person, you know, going through sort of your hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell, like becoming master of the unknown and then coming back and fixing things. It's everybody coming together as masters of their respective fields, respecting each other. And when they finally figure out how to do that, then they are able to prevail against the forces yeah. of purple guys. <laughs> and I think it's powerful and purposeful that the Avengers often don't see eye to eye on things. And that yeah. there is quite a bit of internal conflict 
I mean, um, there's an entire film that's just internal conflict. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, I think there's probably two that I can think of. Civil War and the first Avengers are both, I guess Civil War is the one that the conflict isn't really resolved. It's just the conflict. Right. But, uh, but, but that notion that, because uh, that's what we see right now. Like everyone's, everyone's bickering and we're tearing ourselves apart from inside. And I think we want to believe that we can work past that to something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well said. What about the what about the villains? I feel like the villain archetype within the Avengers movies is is sort of evolving as well. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on I mean, obviously it's pulled from comic books, right? I mean, Thanos and some of these other um villain archetypes are are obviously a manifestation of what was already written in in the comics but i mean you look at the the sort of villain archetype that was in those old school christopher reeve movies and you know they they were sort of otherworldly and they were definitely powerful but there wasn't the sort of same at least i didn't feel it in the same way there wasn't the sort of same level of annihilation or destruction you know and so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Like, wh- what's the evolution of the villain archetype in our in our modern day movies? I want to hear Alan talk about Killmonger. Is what I want to hear. Mm. <laughs> well, that, uh, I yeah, I mean, we talked about that. I love your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, we're we're planning an entire episode just on Killmonger because he's such a fascinating character. Um, and this is don't remember that that's the Michael B. Jordan's character in Black Panther is Killmonger. Yeah, he's he's the villain of the of the black panther film um antagonist and antagonist more than villain antagonist more than villain yeah it's it's really interesting and and i mean i know we're apparently we're just living in marvel world right now this we've watched (laughs) other movies we're educated we know things um yeah i'm killmonger is fascinating like this is another thing where i don't know that marvel gets enough credit they're doing really really daring storytelling so uh, in in Black Panther, the antagonist of the film changes the protagonist's mind. Like, the protagonist comes around to doing literally everything that the antagonist wanted to do except for the methodology. That's it. The only thing that doesn't change, you know, Killmonger was going to do things by force, and uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther, doesn't do things by force and but other than that he comes around completely to his way of thinking he's like nope you were right which is crazy i mean how many times have we seen that in a movie yeah i don't don't think ever the villain was that the villain was philosophically right yeah um and you know another really really daring thing that marvel did is hey let's build up an entire series of films for 10 years and our intro to like the big climactic clash is going to be a two and a half hour movie. That is a movie about the villain. It's the villain's hero's journey. Hmm. It's it, you know, uh, Avengers infinity war is classic hero's journey about Thanos. It follows all the same beats. It does everything exactly the way you would want from a star Wars film or a Marvel movie or whatever, but it's just about Thanos. And, you yeah. know, they, there's an, in, an immense storytelling ask there where it's like, not only are we going to do a hero's journey for the villain, which is insane, we're also going to tell compelling stories and have at least some amount of character arc for 30 odd other heroes 
<laughs> yeah. plus quips, plus action sequences. Plus, you know, it's it is unreal what they've managed to do. But the what they're doing with villains is is really it's really really interesting. People have often said about the James Bond films that James Bond movies are only as good as their villain, hmm. and I think that applies to. I, I honestly think it applies to most movies. I think one of the reasons, you know, the original Die Hard is so great is because Alan Rickman is so great in Die Hard. Class. And as an actual, and as an actual person, like, yeah, he's sure he's motivated by greed, but the way he interacts with people, the way, like, like Theo, the, uh, what, what did Theo play? The character of Theo, I can't remember what else he played in, but like the, the way Alan Rickman interacts with his, with his crew in Die Hard and the way there not only is there banter but like when they open up that safe there's like genuine elation you know and they play Ode to Joy and just and the way he when uh when Holly McLean comes in asking for you know basically hostage rights and he hears her out like there's there's just so much nuance there that that makes him so someone you can latch on to I, I think we see like with Magneto we see you know at least with the the good X-Men films you you have you, you're having more and more antagonists instead of villains. Mm. You have an antagonist who the only thing that's in question is their methodology because their philosophy very often leaves audience going, hmm, that's valid, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, 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 or they come from a place of, of pain, Zemo in Captain America Civil War, you know, losing his family. I, I think you have these, these characters that tend to be more people and they have motivations or philosophies that we can relate to. And that's kind of what makes them scary but then you have the Joker in the Dark Knight who goes completely the other way. He has no backstory. He has no motivation. And that's what makes him terrifying. And I was kind of yet to see, at least maybe there are, have been, but I, I can't think of off the top of my head anyone like Heath Ledger's Joker who is such a tour de force and has no reason for being that other than he just is. And well, somehow it works. I mean, I, I think I love that because there's the archetype of the joker in some ways of loki of that of that sort of character of chaos is that there is no reason right chaos doesn't need a reason chaos just is and so i think there's this there's this wonderful component to heath ledger's joker where it's like he doesn't seem to give a fuck and you don't Mm -hmm. need to know why (laughs) and it just doesn't matter right it just it just doesn't matter and i think that that is so brilliant but there's also merit in what i think you guys are saying which is that the villains um you know marvel movies that we're starting to see there's like a human um there there's a there's a component of them being more humanistic you know that we're adding these depths there's definitely there's definitely marvel movies where the villains are just kind of there and the heroes do all the heavy lifting but uh but yeah, the better ones, your Lokis, your Thanos, your Killmonger, people like that. There's real nuance there. Yeah, and it, it seems like we're moving towards that space. Why do you feel like, I'm going to get both of your perspective on this. Why do you feel like that's important from a psychological standpoint and then from a filmmaking standpoint to really humanize the villains and add in these this like these deeper layers of texture? Um, I think that, I mean... So I'm a, I'm a couples and family therapist, so everybody's got a perspective, right? And the difference between movies and reality is in movies, there's generally somebody who's clearly the, the, the hero and someone who's the villain or the protagonist versus the antagonist. There's someone that you're rooting for and someone that, okay, maybe you relate to them, but they're still a monster. And in therapy and in relationships, 
there's just perspectives. There's just people who are kind of like kind of like a lot of these villains though. They just want safety, respect, and love. And a lot of the the bad, awful, mean, nasty things that we do in our relationships is either an attempt to get safety, respect, or love, or a response to not getting it. And we're actually seeing that psychologically in a lot of our a lot of our villains, a lot of our antagonists, at least, you know, Killmonger just wanted safety for his people. He just wanted respect for his people. He just wanted, I love you, buddy. I'll have a chocolate peanut butter smoothie later. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. Real time um, dad life. Seriously. <laughs> but you know, you guys want a chocolate peanut butter smoothie. Some of you are listening right now going, I'm going to make myself one of those. right now. So you want frozen bananas. You want peanut butter. And you want Hershey syrup and milk. That's all you got to do. I love that you just put out the recipe for it. <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> that's that's definitely staying in the show. <laughs> you want a little granola to give it texture? That's fine. Um, so that's but that's my that's my opinion on that. And I don't know if I go ahead, Alan. Is there anything you want to add? Oh no, I I think I mostly covered it already. It's just you know from from a filmmaking standpoint, you want to have a story that's compelling and the easiest way to make uh, your story compelling is have interesting dynamics between your protagonist and your antagonist. And the best way to make it interesting, the, you know, not easiest, the quickest way to make it interesting is have an antagonist that your protagonist can at least somewhat identify with. You know, this is where the, Oh, we're not so different. You and I trope comes from, right. Is, you know, the antagonist trying to convince the protagonist that I'm just like you, but our methods are slightly different. Where storytelling gets really good is when your protagonist figures that out on their own. You know, I think we're seeing that more. I think we're getting to a place where our storytelling is, is you know, not universally, but in, in our best stuff that's our best films that are coming out, we're starting to see protagonists who are more self-reflective mm. than you know your your muscle-bound Schwarzenegger types, and save you know the Terminator from Terminator Two, who was a very reflective killing robot from the future. Um, and he somehow uh, learned to love. He did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he taught us all to love too. Um, I don't know a single man who had, didn't cry at the end of Terminator Two. By the way, <laughs> oh, I cry every single time. I've seen that movie probably twenty times. <laughs> Every time the, the thumb comes up and goes into the lava, I'm just, I'm in bits. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just just having a protagonist, or a, sorry, an antagonist that the audience can understand and at least in some ways identify with and watching the protagonist learn those things but still defend what is good or right is, it's, that's... That's yeah. good storytelling. That's it. I'm curious on this note to get your perspective on on the Joker, on Joaquin Phoenix, the Joker, because that seemed to be like this very interesting dissolving of the boundaries between the protagonist yeah. and the antagonist. So what were your he thoughts was both. on that? Yeah. Because he, he, was, he was both at the same time. Well, I, I'll keep... We'll keep our thoughts brief on this because we are doing an episode on this, like in a in a few weeks. Yeah. So we don't want to we don't want to use all of our good bits here. We'll, we'll just use this as a teaser because <laughs> we still want people to watch the episode. That's right. Um, 
I look at that and what Joker asks you to do is to treat is to treat him as someone you relate to and have compassion for while still being appalled by what he ultimately ends up doing. And there is there is you know for those who haven't seen it I won't go too I won't go into spoilers but there's um he's on Robert De Niro's talk show at the end and they're they're having kind of a debate with uh, with jokers talking about how people treat those with mental illness and how and how how awfully they get treated and that's why he's kind of turned into who he is and de niro is saying you can't justify your actions based on all the stuff you're saying you know, you're drowning in self-pity and what's crazy is you as i'm watching this as an audience member i'm thinking they're both right you know they're they're both right and they're both wrong because De Niro has kind of been a douche and he's not owning it. And and Joaquin Phoenix is like, okay, you know, it the world has been awful to you and people have been awful to you. Doesn't mean you can you can start inciting violence and killing people, you know? And uh and so I, I look at that film and I think it's it's such an interesting duality because he is both protagonist and antagonist. You know, when when he's Arthur, he's protagonist and you're rooting for him and you're hoping that he he finds love and he finds acceptance and that he finds kindness and that, and that things are going to turn out well for him. And then once he's Joker, you're not rooting for what he's doing, but you, you understand how he got there. And I, I, I see it as a call to we're, we're such a judgmental society and we see, you know, we see one thing that somebody has said or done or a tweet from 10 years ago, or, and we're so quick to dismiss people as bigots or jerks or, you know, we, we find one thing that they've done that we are morally opposed to and, and are justifiably morally opposed to. And we think, well, that's the person. Mm. And I think Joker calls us to say people are more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, not to not to borrow the the Christian phrase of love the sinner, but hate the sin. You know, I'm, I'm not even talking about sin from a theological standpoint. I'm talking from a societal ethical standpoint of there are things that people do that are reprehensible. And sometimes they're beyond redemption and, some, and, and, and justice must be served. But if we're to retain our humanity, it's the, best, the better course of action, totally my opinion, but the better course of action is to look for the person in the monster because that's how we reach and that's how we help. And I guess that's the world I live in as a counselor is sometimes I'm presented with people that I'm like, oh my gosh. And my initial reaction is a very human reaction of what a monster. Hmm. And then I'm, I'm like, well, I'm called to help. It is literally my job to help this person find their humanity. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's what I see in Joker. And I'm going to refer back to what I just said, because this just came from my brain. And now I'm like, crap, we got to put this in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it's a good, it's a good, it's a very, very good line. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to go down this path of exploring the villain is that, you know, in some ways, I mean, we all have a villain inside of us or at least we, most of us feel like we have a very intense villain that's sabotaging us or pulling us down the road of shame or acting out or whatever the, you know, whatever the course may be. And what we know psychologically is that rejecting that part of us never goes well, right? It never, ever, ever goes well. And it doesn't go well culturally in our societies either. And so there is this sort of confrontation with um, the predator with the villain, with the you know protect or the antagonist, or whatever whatever label you want to throw on that, that seems to be showing up within our 
you know, collective unconscious right now within our psyches right now, and it's showing up within our culture, within our cultural movements. Alan, did you want to add anything to that? I, I just want to give you a chance to to pop in on that as well. I I do not have anything to add. Uh, I maybe the only thing I would say is you know contrasting um, Heath Ledger's Joker with Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, both fascinating characters, both really interesting character studies. Joaquin Phoenix's is one that we can identify with, and Heath Ledger's is one that we are fascinated by. Because, you know, Heath Ledger's is is sort of the personification of entropy as as a force in the universe, right? It's a thing that we're all familiar with, and we've all seen it. We've even met those, I call them entropy people, like people who just sort of things crumble as they walk past relationships and jobs and, you know, just just not from their own malice, but just sort of things fall apart. And to find, to have a character who, is that person and revels in it and just loves that is, is fascinating, but not approachable. Mm. Yeah. And, and Joaquin Phoenix's Joker is, you know, I feel like I know that guy. Mm. I feel like I've met 50 of that guy who just haven't quite gone that far, you know, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious to shift gears a little bit here before we wrap up. Where, if anywhere, do you see cancel culture being represented within films? Because this seems to be a very interesting part of our modern society. And I know we're sort of, we're veering off topic. And I know I didn't, I didn't preface any of this. There's no preparation on this is just sort of like off the top. But it is a sort of curious phenomena that that there is a lot of this silencing in, in cancel culture that's becoming very pervasive, especially in the face of you know, things that we perceivably don't like and or things that we have labeled as the villain or the antagonist within our culture. Um, So it feels like we're almost regressing a little bit in some of these ways where uh, where that's that's becoming a a very specific form of dealing with things that we don't like. So do you have any off the top of your head, any any representations of that in film or any Um, thoughts on it in general? Well, we're on the subject of Joker, the Joaquin Phoenix version, and the whole uh, Thomas Wayne being an a-hole in that movie versus the good-hearted philanthropist he was in Batman Begins. And and calling the poor and the mentally ill, he basically calls them a bunch of clowns. And this starts this movement started by Joaquin Phoenix's character where all these people are, they're going to take back their city from the rich and the privileged wearing clown masks and citing acts of violence. And to me, the, I mean, the cancel culture is they're, they're trying to cancel the classes and they're trying to, they're trying to cancel how, basically how they've been treated. And I see cancel culture, you know, I, I don't agree with cancel culture, broadly speaking. I mean, there are a couple of people that I'm like, yeah, you're done. Like, I'm sorry, Bill Cosby, but you ruined Bill Cosby for me. You know, Harvey Weinstein should be canceled and put in prison, probably. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But but uh, but I, I think cancel culture comes from a very genuine place of we've had enough. Yeah. We've I, we, we've had enough of I mean, I we've had enough of misogyny. We've had enough of homophobia. We've had enough of racism. We've had enough of giving people chances to change. And we're just fed up. And, you know, what, what happens with it, in my opinion, is it becomes a, 
a loaded weapon that people can get caught up and it, it can it can be pointed and aimed and fired when it shouldn't be. Mm. You know, I, I look at Joker and they're they're fed up with what's going on in society. So what happens? They basically, I mean, the crowds basically burn the city down and celebrate Joker as their hero. And, uh, and, and the reasons they're upset are completely valid. But there are people in the, cross, in the crosshairs that are either innocent or could change and, and would change if, if, it were just, if they were just made aware. You know, I, I see people like James Gunn. I'm not condoning any, all, some of the jokes James Gunn did 10, 15 years ago. Like, and neither is he. He's like, those were awful. And I was in a very different place. But there was a whole surge of let's cancel James Gunn until basically the Guardians cast and a bunch of other people like, you guys don't know him. And that's not who he is today, you know, and that's not. And, and I think if we if we cancel people, we don't give them the chance to change, mm. you know. Now, if people are given the chance to change and they continue being belligerent a-holes or treating people poorly, I think we're all within our rights to say, I'm not going to support your work anymore. Mm. But saying, hey, you said something offensive 10, 15 years ago. Alan and I are going to address this in the future. We, we made we had a project that had offensive content in it now that were that we were trying to be edgy and funny. And now we're like, gosh, that was terrible. And we would hate to be canceled over who we were 16, 15, 16 years ago when we were a couple of dumb college kids, yeah. you know, because we learned and we grew. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because there's sort of an intersectionality between that Joker character of Joaquin Phoenix and the cancel culture. You know, it's that it's like, Oh, you're not going to listen to me. All right. Well then, I'm going to take things to the next level. And I think that's, yeah. that's the sort of interesting part about the Joker character for me and Joaquin Phoenix was that it, I felt like it sort of spoke to both extremes, you know, that we're feeling that polarity within our culture right now. It sort of spoke to both extremes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts on that from either of you before we, before we wrap? I know it's, a, I know it's an interesting. I think we need to balance our activism and our, and our pushing for change. Like, it, it is unfortunately true that you, usually when things get extreme, it is because less extreme methods haven't worked. You know, yeah. like that's, you know, people, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not to, going to share political opinions on, you know, people are talking about like the riots that happened last year and Black Lives Matter and people are like, well, you know, protest peacefully, not this. And the response was, we did for decades, you know, <laughs> and, 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 I, I think the best thing, if we want to avoid extremes in, in cancel culture or in any sort of in any sort of societal change, we want to avoid the extremes and the violence and or or even just the social violence, not physical violence, but where there's so much vitriol and hatred and anger. When we show that we listen, when we show that we care, when we show that we're willing to take ownership and make changes, we prevent escalation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, like in Joker, like all of that, like all of that could have been prevented. I'm not saying like I justify the actions that were taken, but it all could have been prevented if people gave more of a damn, which was exactly, you know, Arthur, Arthur Fleck's point. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, I feel it, like it's, it's like he's Jack Nicholson's Joker, except for instead of talking to Michael Keaton, he's talking to society and he's like, you made me remember. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, well said, well said. Well, I feel like that's a good place for us to pause. 
Um, this was awesome, guys. I, I really appreciate the work that, that you're doing uh, at Cinema Therapy. And for, for the people that, that are out there that want to follow along, they want to watch you, where, where do they go? Where's the best way for them to access you on YouTube? Uh, best place to find us is Cinema Therapy on YouTube. We're also on uh, Twitter and Instagram as at therapy underscore cinema because we were too slow. And uh, we're also <laughs> on Reddit, r slash cinema therapy. Awesome. And, and Facebook. Maybe you said Facebook and I didn't hear you. No, but, all yeah. good. All good. Well, we'll have the links for all that in the show notes. And uh, maybe we'll have to have you back on for that talk about Jungian archetypes in movies because I, I would love to bring it on. on that at some point. I, I will uh, pull out the old textbooks and brush up. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, for everyone that's out there listening, definitely head on over and check out Cinema Therapy. There's some great, great videos. Um, are you guys doing one on Soul? Have you already done one on Soul? Have you seen this movie? Uh, we have, we- and we will be shooting it in two weeks, I think. Awesome. Three, three weeks yeah three weeks yeah awesome i can't wait i can't wait to watch that one because what a what a great i thought it was a great movie I, I loved it it was brilliant yeah yeah awesome um so don't forget to share this episode minute four share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it and love the love the geek out conversation as much as i did and uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe and until next week this is Connor beaton signing off mm-hmm.